Welcome back to another episode of Better Together, a healthcare podcast from the Nepean Blue Mountains region in New South Wales, Australia, where we discuss the ways in which patients and healthcare consumers are collaborating with healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, allied health professionals and administrative staff to help improve the health system and get better outcomes for patients in hospital and in the community. We record our podcast at Nepean Hospital, part of the Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District, which operates on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gundungurra and Wiradjuri peoples. My name's Dominic, but for this episode I'm handing over entirely to my co-host Matt Roger and two very special guests. The first is Caroline Allen, an experienced consumer of mental health services and a passionate advocate for service improvement and reform, and also Matt Russell, the Director of Mental Health Services at the Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District. Today's show discusses the introduction and potential impact of advanced statements in mental health care and also takes on the Mental Health Act and restrictive practices. You'll hear about the use of human rights as a framework for advocating for better mental health care, as well as tips for how to get involved in your own care and authentic and genuine co-design processes. The show ends with an account of some recent successes of consumer engagement in mental health at Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District and touches on future directions. Enjoy the show. My name is Matt Roger and I'm an active consumer representative. As a person living with the challenges of a disability, I'm passionate about safe, high-quality healthcare that is never compromised for all consumers. The National Study of Mental Health and Wellbeing, published by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, reported that in the period 2020 to 2021, over two in five, or about 8.6 million Australians aged 16 to 85, were estimated to have experienced a mental disorder at some point in their life. And with one in five, or about 4.2 million people having experienced a mental disorder in the previous 12 months. We're fortunate today to be joined by Nepean Hospital-based Director of Mental Health, Matt Russell, and Carolyn Allen, one of my fellow consumer representatives in the district, who is also a member of Nepean Blue Mountains Mental Health Consumer and Carer Council. Thanks, Matt and Caroline, for joining me in the studio today. No problem, good to be here. So I think to set the scene, let's, can you tell me a bit more about yourselves and your roles in consumer engagement across the district? Sure. Matt, we'll start with you if that's all right. Yeah, that's all right with you, Caroline. That's fine. All right. So my name is Matt. I'm a mental health nurse by background. I trained in the UK in the early 1990s um, and have predominantly always worked in mental health. So I've um, specialised in child adolescent mental health um, and then worked a little bit in family therapy as well. And more recently, about three years ago, I was really lucky to be able to get the position of director for mental health for Nepean Blue Mountains local health district. Wonderful. And Caroline? Uh, so I'm Caroline. Um, I have a very extensive psychiatric history um, and I've had many um, inpatient admissions. Um, I now struggle with quite a significant amount of trauma due to those admissions. And so I'm very passionate about improving mental health services. Um, I come strongly from a human rights perspective and I tend to identify as a survivor of mental health services um, given the the level of trauma that I've experienced. Um, So it's always exciting to be in a space where I can hopefully create change. Um, Change is never quick. Uh, but we're all working towards it. 
Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge that, that this is a, a safe space for us today, and there may be people who are listening to today's podcast that this may have hit pretty close to home. And I wanted to acknowledge and, and respect the, the trust and honesty with which we're going to talk about these sort of difficult issues today. But Matt, let me start with you. And I mentioned your, from your perspective, how are families and, and patients involved in shared decision-making for mental health care across the district in relation to, particularly in relation to care delivery? Yeah. So I think I, before I kind of answer that question, Matt, I just wanted to respond to Caroline's introduction and comments and yeah. and say that, that, that we, we have done horrible things to people in the interests of mental health care or under the banners of mental health care over the years. Um, and there, there, there has been people that have been harmed and we have caused trauma to people through attempts to support and help in ways that, that at the time might have been our best efforts to be able to do what we thought was best at that time for a person. Um, uh, but however, we continue to strive and want to do better for people. And it's really echoing the importance and value of, of people like Caroline's contribution to us within mental health services and mental health leadership to be able to hear that story and hear those people's traumatic experiences so that we we do continue to do better and that we really do continue to do more. And um, it's a real privilege for me to be to know people like Caroline and mm -hmm. to be really heavily involved in supporting consumers. Um, to tell us that we need to do better and to tell mm. us when we haven't done well in the past mm. and, and really acknowledge that how difficult that can be. But I just wanted mm. to stress mm. how much I value that. Yeah, and I think that's an important um, consideration when we were thinking about previous episodes in this series as well, where that sort of patient lived experience voice is critically important for yourselves in the hospital system yeah. to understand what it actually means as a patient when their care is provided for them. But in this case, it sounds like it might have been care to them. Absolutely, and that's a different that's a different perspective. Yeah, and I think that kind of um, that idea of of care with rather than care to is really crucial to that idea of, of doing with rather than doing to, which mm -hmm. I think really crystallises mm -hmm. where we want to go. And I think. I think that's one of the challenges in mental health um, that makes it different to other parts of the hospital um, because the reality is that in mental health, we do still do two people. Um, mental health, you know, you can be forcibly medicated. You can be forcibly locked up against your will. You can be forcibly given electric convulsive therapy. <clears throat> um, so these things are quite different um, to the rest of the hospital when we talk about issues around um, consent and mm -hmm. and working with versus doing things to people. So it's mm. it's a, it, it, I know we try to say that mental health is just like physical health, um, but it actually isn't um, mm. because of the Mental Health Act and the fact that you mm. can be forced to undergo treatment that you don't want. Mm. Um, so it's fundamentally different. Yeah, and I think that'll be one of the things that we can perhaps try and draw around in this conversation today because to clearly identify people listening today what those differences are and how the treatment options and pathways need to be different. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Matt, going back to that original yeah. question, um, from your perspective, how are patients and families involved in shared decision-making in relation to mental health treatment across the district? So I think it kind of is a, is a range that starts with people 
getting care from our services and seeking care from our services and, and how do we work with individuals and families seeking care about taking time to get to know the person, get to know their family, get to know their social networks, get to know what's important to them um, and important to that person and then really developing care in partnership with that person, that person's family, that person's social network. So the, the, the idea of treatment is very much agreed in a collaborative approach, in a, in a with approach rather than to approach. Sorry, does that mean you get a more holistic view of the patient as a whole rather than just one particular part of their, their treatment need? Certainly, that's the aspiration. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of aspirations in mental health. <laughs> we aspire um, for great things. Yeah, certainly, that would be the aspiration that, that we do do that, and we do that every time for everybody. Um, we're not, we don't always do that, and we certainly don't always do it as well as we could. And some of those pressures that we have around doing that, um, I think, particularly when people are in crisis. Um, and when people are acting, accessing the traditional services that have supported people in crisis, which is emergency departments, which is our triage and emergency assessment centre, it's hard at that time to do that really well for, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, and I'm not saying that it's right that we don't, but there's a number of pressures that make that really hard. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've done recently, which I think is really hopeful to start to make a change to that is introducing advanced statements within our service, which is very different to an advanced care plan, which talks about what people might want to think about if they're at the end of their life and how they want to be looked mm -hmm. after at those. Our advanced statements are very different. So they're specifically for people who have a mental health crisis and they're able to talk about what they want and how they want to be supported when they're having a crisis. So that if they do come to the ED, that document is available. ED staff can read it, mental health staff can read it. And we do that planning with the time with people at a time when they're not in crisis, when they're well. So they don't have to tell their whole story. They don't have to go through all that. And we hope that that starts to reduce some of those and are those advanced statements only used within the Nepean Blue Mountains ISD or are they used in other districts as well? So they're, they're law in Victoria. So in Victoria, it's a it's a law that these have to be created for people. Um, in terms of in New South Wales, we're leading the way in developing them for mental health services. So for the moment, it is, it is just within the Nepean Blue Mountains area um, and there's there's different doc there's there's different document there's wellness plans that lots of people create which are more about how to stay well and how to reduce the likelihood of crisis the difference with the advanced statement is that it's very specifically designed to help people get the support they need in the way they want it mm -hmm. during a crisis Carol, what's your perspective on the use of the advanced statements in mental health care? Yep, so I think the advanced statements is a very exciting step forward. Um, I think, I think I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I think the important thing will be um, to really get staff on board, um, particularly in the ED, in the emergency department, um, to make sure that those advanced statements are read. Um, as Matt said, it's not law in New South Wales, um, so staff don't have to follow the advanced statement, um, but ideally um, they will um, because 
we really we need to be able to motivate consumers to complete it. We really don't want people having the experience of completing an advanced statement and then having it ignored if they come into hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think educating staff around it um, is a really exciting piece. And yeah, okay. I definitely think it's a really good way forward. Wonderful news. And I think the, the other way that we promote shared decision-making is is through our consumer carer council and that gives the opportunity for consumers and carers to have a a high level engagement with decision making Mm. within the mental health service. That's a really great segue into question for you Caroline, how does that mental health consumer and carer council drive the focus areas for mental health services across the district? Yep. Um, So I guess drive is quite a strong word. I would like to think that we're in the driving seat. (laughs) I'm not not entirely sure that we are. Um, We very much do work in collaboration with um, Matt and um, the rest of the executive in mental health. Um, So I'd say that we're more aspiring to be equal partners. Um, Hopefully I'll get in the driving seat one day, then we'll really change the world. (laughs) But I do very much appreciate um, the the effort that goes into working collaboratively. Um, I think we're certainly doing it very well. Um, like everything else in mental health, we can always do it better. Um, but I really do value the fact um, Matt often comes to our monthly meetings. Um, we get a lot of information and insight into things that are happening um, in the mental health units and in the service. Um, and certainly the advanced statements was something that uh, the Consumer and Carer Council very much pushed. So mm-hmm. that's that's probably one of our, our greatest achievements mm-hmm. today. Well, if I think about our, our broader consumer engagement message, is it hashtag consumer driven? And I think that's an important aspect that you just talked about in the, in the Consumer and Carer Council, that we can drive positive change by working in collaboration with, with the healthcare workers. Now, you mentioned aspirational goals before, and and patient and family engagement is a a fantastic and perhaps aspirational goal, but it's not a simple thing to achieve. So what do you see to be some of the challenges and barriers to meaningful consumer engagement in mental health care? um, When I I was reflecting on this, to me, one of the biggest barriers is the Mental Health Act, um, and that's certainly bigger than me or Matt or our LHD. or probably even New South Wales Health, um, again, coming back to that idea that mental health is different to other parts of the hospital. Um, so consumers, in, in some instances, simply don't have the right to refuse medication. So it's disingenuous to suggest that we are meaningfully collaborating when at the end of the day, when all's said and done, um, they can be held down and forcibly medicated against their will. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest barriers. And again, I know it's it's much bigger than any of us here, um, but I'll keep fighting the good fight mm-hmm. to, to get rid of those coercive and restrictive practices. Can the advanced statements override those coercive practices you talk about? Not the Mental Health Act, unfortunately. Right, okay. Yeah. So, so I think there is, I think there's space for thinking about how do we have conversations around the Mental Health Act and how do we have conversations around when it's applied, when isn't it applied, how do we, one of the core principles of the Mental Health Act is that is that we have to offer least restrictive care. Um, and I think there's a, an opening for a conversation around how do we get the Mental Health Act out of people's lives as quickly as possible. 
So what is it that we need to do as a service and working collaboratively and working with people who are affected by the Mental Health Act? How do we get this out of your life as quickly as possible Mm -hmm. so we can get you back to being autonomous, being able to make decisions for yourself, being able to have this as a way that it's not in your life? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a space that, that there is different models developing about how we have those conversations with people and how we make that conversation really overt that we say well okay you're on a community treatment order at the moment Mm -hmm. it means you have to have this medication is there any way that we can work with you so that we can get rid of the cto and we can still help you to stay well and and safe Mm -hmm. because that's what we really want and not doing it in a paternalistic well you have to do this because the act Mm -hmm. tells you to way and i think like listening to Matt like I I deeply admire people like Matt who can talk openly and own the fact that we're not doing great at the moment that it's not okay some of the things that happen Um, and so yeah I I admire and I think this is why I enjoy being on the Consumer Care Council just being able to have these open conversations not trying to pretend that everything's all good Mm. Um, I often because I float in the space so much and you would be the same Matt I often forget that the general public aren't even aware of some of the things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was speaking to someone recently who'd never heard of the concept of a community treatment order. So it's possible that people listening have no idea what that is. Could um, you explain a bit more about that? Because yeah. I, I have to admit I'm not familiar with it either. So. <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> so a community, and correct me if I get it wrong, but a community treatment order means that a person can be forced by law under the Mental Health Act um, to take medication even if they don't want it. And the idea is that if they don't take that medication, they can then be taken back into hospital and locked up in the psych ward. So they're they're compelled by law to take that medication. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, coming from that strong human rights perspective, um, that in and of itself, I think, is abhorrent. Um, If you think in any other context, forcing someone to take a drug that they don't want would be considered assault but it's allowed under the Mental Health Act. Mm. Um, And particularly, I mean, some of these drugs, the antipsychotic medications, it's very well known that um, they have life-limiting effects, um, including things like metabolic syndrome. Um, So at the the moment in Australia in 2023, um, people can be forced by law to take drugs that have um, life-limiting effects. And Mm. as long as that's happening, I'll be there fighting the Mm. good fight. Well, I think it's a very strong reason why consumer advocacy in these sorts of important areas is critical to the safe, high-quality, uncompromised level of healthcare that we expect as, as in this day and age. And I think, so. I think it's the, the, one of the bits that, that I always come back to because I grapple with the Mental Health Act and coercive practices a lot of the time. And I think one of the bits that we really struggle with is, is, is this concept of least restrictive care. And, and sometimes there's a tension between, is it, least restricted to have someone in the community on a Mm. regular medication rather than an inpatient unit. But I think the least restrictive part that we sometimes don't always consider is, like I said earlier, how do we get the mental health act out of your life as quickly as possible? Mm. That's right. I mean, to me, if a person doesn't want to take medication, um, that is their right and their choice. Um, And the idea that at the moment the law says you must take this medication or we will lock you up in a psych ward, um, I, I just find that incomprehensible that mm. that can happen mm. in Australia in 2023. Mm. I mentioned right at the start that, that I live with the challenges of a disability and I often reflect on how that then impacts on people from a culturally and linguistically diverse background. 
So the chance that you just talked about for non-cold populations must be even more challenging for cold populations. How does that change the dynamic in the way that you provide mental health services across the district? Yeah, so we, we work really closely with the district's cold multicultural team. Um, we have got a specific mental health cold strategy, which we're working through and working through and developing. Um, some of it is is really making sure that we're getting the basics right for people, that people can access interpreters when they need to access interpreters, that we have information available in multiple languages so that people can access information that's in the right language for them. I think one of the the kind of other aspects of it is understanding how different cultures view distress and how different cultures view mental illness and, and how other cultures have a, a, a lens that is different to a white Western culture. Um, mm. And that applies to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander as much as other people with multi, with, from the other kind of aspects of multiculturalism that we work with. And I think some of it is education, some of it's taking time to understand that, that what might look like madness to use a, a particular mm-hmm. word in one lens might look like a completely normal response to a difficult situation through a different through another lens mm-hmm. so caroline from, given what you've talked about with the consumer and care council how do you see that more consumers patients and families can become better involved in their own health care yeah. Um, so at that sort of systemic level, um, we have a consumer coordinator and a carer coordinator. So we, and again, I know this doesn't happen in other parts of health, but in mental health, we very strongly distinguish between consumers and carers because their experiences are radically different and sometimes are in conflict. Um, so we have a carer coordinator and a consumer coordinator. Um, so if you email them, <laughs> um, that, that would be the way to connect. And I have no idea how we're going to put that on a podcast, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, so certainly connecting with those coordinators, that way people can get involved in different sort of co-design projects, like when everything, anything new is being developed. Um, the mental health service definitely aims to co-design people with, co-design things um, with people with relevant lived experience, um, because obviously um, the term mental health is extremely broad. Um, so uh, the service is very passionate about um, having that authentic, genuine co-design. Um, and then I guess more at the individual level, how people can be involved in their own care. For, from my perspective, it's very much about educating oneself about this thing we call mental health, um, understanding that it is only one way of looking at things. As Matt said, some things that are seen as madness under the medical model um, in other perspectives are a perfectly normal reaction to the highly abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the medical model, which the mental health system is very much based on, um, is really only one way to look at things. And I think it's really important for people to avoid thinking that, well, they're a psychiatrist, so they must be right. Um, I think it's important for people to do their own research and ask lots of questions and look at different perspectives. And if something doesn't feel right, um, then listen to your gut. Um, just really being careful not to simply accept what what the experts say. Mm. That would be the thing I do. You about. mentioned, a, thanks, Carol. You mentioned a carer and a consumer 
uh, coordinator. Could you just very quickly outline the, the key difference between the two? Yeah. Um, so consumers, so in mental health, we use the term consumer rather than patient, um, and that's got a, a long history. Um, some people like it, some people hate it. Um, so consumers are people who've actually had the experience of ment- having a mental health issue. Um, carers, stating the obvious, are people who've cared for someone with a mental health issue. And I think... Again, possibly in mental health, it's different to other parts of the hospital in terms of the the wants and needs of the consumers are often in conflict with the carer. So the consumer may not want to be in hospital, whereas the carer wants the person to be in hospital. Um, the care the consumer may not want to take a particular medication. The carer might go to the magistrate and advocate for them being having to take that medication. One of those mm-hmm. CTOs that we talked about. Um, so that's where it can be quite tricky. Um, obviously, it's consumers who experience things like forced medication, like being locked in seclusion, like being mm-hmm. tied to a bed, what we call mechanical restraint. Um, so consumers experience those things. Carers, obviously, they have the distress of seeing those things happen to their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, so both equally valid um, experiences, mm-hmm. but quite different. So that's why we tend to separate them out more in mental health. And it does seem to be... a uh a lot of stigma around mental health and mental health issues in general across our community. How do you see the Consumer and Care Council working towards helping to reduce the stigma associated with mental health? How do we do that? Well, I'm on the Consumer and Care Council. I'm obviously clearly saying. Matt or (laughs) your perspective on that? I think it's... um, I think it's recognising that anyone can have a mental health problem in the right circumstances, that, that it's not one group of people who have mental health problems, it's not one group of people who don't have mental health problems. Um, and I think it's recognising that we all have vulnerabilities to mental mm-hmm. health problems and, and given the right set of circumstances, any of us could be in the situations where we need mm-hmm. mental health care mm-hmm. and mental health support. Yeah, that, I guess I mentioned there right at the top about the the, the survey results. Yeah, you know, uh, one in was it one in four? I think have a possibility of having a, a mental health disorder in the last twelve months. Yeah, one in five. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that kind of conflation at times of of distress and normal reactions to really difficult inv- events suddenly is framed as a mental health problem mm, rather mm. than a human problem. And and there are human issues that, that we respond to, to distress and crisis in certain ways. Mm. And So pick up on that there, Matt, with your mental health nurse background, how do you see doctors and other healthcare workers better engaging with patients and families going through mental health treatment? So when, when I was trained in the 90s, our biggest tool that we got trained in was the therapeutic relationship. And, and the, the biggest strategy that you would have as a being a good mental health nurse or a good mental health professional was not medication, was not restrictive practices, was not being able to formulate a very impressive diagnosis for somebody. It was actually being able to engage and develop a relationship with somebody. And once you've actually engaged and developed a really good relationship with somebody, 
that really becomes the basis for healing and the basis for being able to support people. Um, and I feel like that's got lost a bit, that idea of the importance of forming relationships and relational approaches to care mm. um, has got lost. And I don't quite understand why, but we've got very focused on risk assessments, task assessments, task lists, and it's become very procedural in what we need to do rather than actually coming back to a basic human connection and kindness and relationship. And I, I can understand some of the reasons why that has happened is, is that um, people are busier. It feels like we're more pressured in health services now. It feels like we don't have as much time as we used to to get to know people. Um, and it feels as if often we're going to get asked, why didn't we do tick this right box if something bad happens? Yeah, I was thinking too, like at the like we, we tend to talk a lot about sort of the inpatient units and that because that's the space we move in. Um, but sort of at that um, milder end when people are perhaps struggling with um, depression or anxiety, there's this trend now of referring them to an app. Um, and to me, that's the epitome of what you're saying, Matt, of, yeah, forgetting the therapeutic relationship. Um, and again, I think this is, it's almost a, a consequence or a side effect of the medical model. Like if we've kind of gone, it's an illness, we fix it with this therapy or medication or whatever, rather than saying it's a human response to some awful life circumstances, we fix human stuff with human connection. Um, so I think those things are kind of tied in together. Mm -hmm. Question for you, Matt. On, on this program previously, we've talked with other clinicians about the psychological demands on clinicians who need to balance a detached and objective view of their patients while still trying to understand their individual needs and respond to them appropriately. What are your thoughts about this? And, and is there a strategy that you think or you've observed that worked well in the mental health space? I think it comes back to what we were just talking about, about giving people permission and recognising the importance of connection and kindness and relationship in supporting people. Um, and then putting in the appropriate training models, strategies that people need, because it's a skill to be able to develop those approaches. Um, and I think it is a, a training bit that, will, that could be provided to people in a different way to what is provided at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, I think that humanising distress is going to be a really crucial part of, of how we do better in this space as well. Um, being able to repair with people when things go wrong um, and actually being able to own up and say, we didn't do that as well as we could and we're really sorry about that. Mm -hmm. um, and please help us to learn how we can do better in the future. And sorry, I have to say that the um, the Pain Blue Mountains Mental Health Service is very good at that. Um, <laughs> that, that I always feel very comfortable, Matt, coming to you and yeah. ranting about something yeah. that I think you've done terribly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we can have a chat and, and it's all good afterwards. Um, so I think that is a major, major part of it, that just that being open about the fact that we're doing the best we can right now, but we know we can do better. Um, and when we know better, we will do better. Um, to me, that's, that is foundational. Uh, I think, and that's very kind of you to say that because that's something that I really promote within the service as well. Um, but I think there's also that idea of, of giving people their autonomy and, and letting people, sometimes we call it a dignity of risk. 
where we have to accept that humans are autonomous, independent people, mm-hmm. and why we have duties of care to do what we can to keep people mm. safe. At some point, mm. we need to let people be themselves. Mm. I, I also think, um, like talking about this this issue of supporting staff, um, I often reflect on the challenges of staff um, experiencing what we call moral injury. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure no one goes into nursing with the, the intention of causing harm to people. And as we've talked about, the reality is that some, some really bad things happen in inpatient mental health units. And I often reflect on how nurses then go home and sleep at night knowing these things have happened. Um, and I can see how incredibly difficult it is. So, for example, I would never be able to cope working in that environment because I'd be so outraged all the time that I would just completely burn out and melt down. Um, so I... I appreciate that people need to be able to tolerate it in order to be able to work in the space. Um, but, of course, you then run the risk of the only way people can survive is to, like, what's the word, kind of um, step back from it and um, distance themselves from it. Um, and then that becomes highly problematic because that's when staff tend to lose their empathy and their care. Mm. Um, so trying to get staff who can maintain that genuine care and connection and empathy and be able to sleep at night knowing that bad stuff happens, uh, that is a super, super challenge. And look, a lot of that is is my responsibility in terms of how I make sure that people have clinical supervision, how I make sure that people are well-trained for the work that they do, um, to make sure that people feel feel comfortable that they're working as part of a team and that there's team people sharing decisions that um that people are safe as well and, mm-hmm. and we have an obligation to keep staff and consumers safe at the mm-hmm. same time so it's mm-hmm. tricky but we do those things yeah and Napina hospital is undergoing a multi-year one billion dollar redevelopment i'm interested in your perspectives from both a consumer and also a a healthcare worker in the mental health space, how will or how has redevelopment improved the delivery of mental health care services across the district? I'll start. So the most exciting bit in some ways is that we're getting a dedicated child adolescent inpatient unit um, and that we've been able to co-design that unit with young people and families as every step of the way as we've gone through with it. We've deliberately designed that unit not to have a seclusion room. And so we've designed the physical space to not have the option for seclusion for for children and young people in that in that space so that's really mm-hmm. exciting um, and what that's meant is that we've then had to look really carefully at how do we develop alternative models of care so that people don't rely on, on mm-hmm. that so we're really hoping that that will be a good thing because it means that young people who need that acute inpatient support will be able to get it locally because at mm-hmm. the minute they either have to go to PEC or they have to go outside of the area to one of the other child and adolescent units so that's really exciting PEC yeah I was just going to say PEC stands for Psychiatric Emergency Care Centre. Correct. Yeah. So it's a very small inpatient unit. Yeah, right. six beds, okay. and, and the okay. idea is that people spend kind of between two or three days there. Um, you've already alluded to a few things about what's still missing and where to next for strengthening consumer engagement in mental health, but do you have any final thoughts on, on that? Yeah. Um, so I will continue to 
harass people <laughs> about um, the human rights issues that occur in mental health. Um, I will bring them up at every opportunity. I will speak about them anywhere. Um, and I think that's that is the thing that's missing. Like, and and as Matt said, that and it's all connected. The use of coercive practices, um, the lack of focus on the therapeutic relationship. Um, these are the things that are missing. And I think what what I believe we need is a passion to eliminate um, restrictive practices. Um, I know some people believe that's just not possible. Um, I believe it is. Um, so I think, yeah, working towards eliminating those restrictive um, practices is the thing. Um, so at any opportunity, I will speak out about this sort of stuff. Um, so then I encourage other people to get on board and, mm. and fight the good fight too. So we can all go knocking on Matt's door. <laughs> <laughs> all paths lead to, lead to Matt. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt, any final thoughts from yourself? I think it's just continuing to have people like Carol and Caroline come and talk to me regularly, making sure that we have got formal structures within our services to get that feedback um, and to make sure that, that we acknowledge and privilege that feedback that we get and make commitments to taking it seriously. Well, that's been awesome. Um, I wanted to thank both yourself, Matt and Caroline, for your fantastic insights into consumer engagement in the mental health healthcare space. Don't forget, everyone, that mental health is a universal human right. Uh, and really think about um, mental health care services in your area and certainly encourage you to... Um, beat down a path to both Carolina and Matt's doors if you have ideas about how to improve the delivery of mental health care services in the Nepean Blue Mountains local health district. Thanks for sticking with us for another episode of Better Together. If this episode has raised anything that's difficult for you, please don't neglect your own self-care and call on support you may need from others. Don't forget crisis support services like Lifeline, available 24 hours a day on 13 11 14. Please tune in again for more topics on consumer engagement, including an upcoming episode on multicultural consumer voices. If you're interested in getting involved or have an idea for a show, please drop us a line at bettertogetherconsumerpodcast at gmail.com. The Better Together podcast is a consumer-driven initiative with help from staff across the Nepean Blue Mountains local health district. Catch you next time.